Good morning. I'd like you to watch this little video, please. Many years ago, after I graduated from business school, I decided to take a vacation. I chose a small, quiet fishing village where I thought I'd be able to take my mind off of business, if only for a few days. Walking along the beach just before sunset, I saw a small fishing boat coming to shore. Inside the boat were lone fishermen and several beautiful yellowfin tuna. How long did it take you to catch those fish, I asked. Only a couple of hours, he replied. Why don't you stay out a bit longer and catch more, I asked, certain that there must be a demand for more fish than the few I saw in the boat. The fisherman smiled. I catch enough to support my family and I live a full and busy life. I rise with the sun, fish a little, play with my daughters, have lunch with my family, and then teach children how to fish before I stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my wife and friends. Listen, I said, I have an MBA. I can help you vastly expand your business. If you would simply spend more time fishing, you would soon earn enough money to buy a bigger boat. Really? questioned the fisherman. Absolutely. And with a bigger boat, you'd soon catch enough fish to buy several boats than a whole fleet. At that point, you'd be big enough to sell your fish directly to a processor, cutting out the middleman and greatly increasing your profits. The fisherman raised an eyebrow. Hmm. Eventually, you could open your own cannery and control the product, the processing, and the distribution, I added. Then what, he asked. Well, you then relocate your operations to the capital. And if all goes well, you'd likely find yourself in New York City and control of a rapidly expanding empire. How long would all of this take, he asked, clearly following my logic. Oh, probably between 10 and 15 years, I replied. And then what? Well, that's the best part. You would announce an IPO and sell stock to the public. At that point, my friend, you would be very, very rich. A millionaire many times over. The fisherman paused. Really? A millionaire? Then what? What do you mean? I answered a bit surprised. I mean, what would I do if I were a millionaire? What kind of question is that? Whatever you like, of course. I imagine you retire. Move to a small coastal fishing village where you would rise with the sun, fish a little, play with your granddaughters, have lunch with your family, and... Then teach children how to fish before strolling into the village each evening where you'd sip wine and play guitar with your wife and friends. The fisherman smiled and without saying another word began to build a small fire. We shared a taste of the delicious fish and watched the sun go down over the ocean as the sound of guitars rose from the village nearby. The Good Life. What is the good life? Is it about happiness? Is it about security? Is it about purpose and meaning, prosperity, a well-being, relationships, love? Is a good life about loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself? I ask this question because here in North America, the good life is something that everyone is striving to attain, attain to. Striving to have, to get to. But what they end up doing to get it, and what they become in the process of getting it, is usually anything but good. 
Our current sermon series is entitled Dollars and Cents, and Pastor Shannon has been taking us on a very, very challenging, convicting, eye-opening series on our relationship to finances and what God has to say about finances. And the thesis to this sermon series is simply stated, as you see above, that it's only when our financial priorities align with kingdom priorities, in other words, what God has established as being the most important thing, will we handle our finances in a way that declares that Jesus is Lord of our lives. Now, if you've been here long enough, you have heard us use the word exegesis, exegetical message, exegetical sermon. It's when you take a portion of scripture and you do a deep dive and you try to really explain the context so that there is just simply no doubt about what was being said to the audience at that time. And you make the leap over into our world and what, what does the text actually say to us today? Today is not going to be an exegetical sermon. If anything, it's, it's a survey. It's a snapshot. It's like a satellite you know, it's a satellite roaming over the earth, so to speak, and zeroing in on different parts. Eventually, though, um, at one point, I'm going to show you a satellite image that has troubled me for the better part of my, my journey as a Christ follower. But this present series, sermon series really has, has, for me, uncovered the elephant in the room once again. And as much as I would like to avoid it in my own life and really don't necessarily feel all that comfortable about talking about it in, in this context, I would at least like to put it out there this morning for your consideration and more importantly for you to take it to heart and to allow God to speak to you through his word and hear what he's saying to you about this incredibly important subject. This morning, I'm going to give you three snapshots, two big satellite images, and then one really small, specific, poignant one. Three portions of Scripture that I think are really going to help us understand the difference between the good life and the God life, and how important it is that we understand the role of finances, wealth, whatever you want to call it, in that regard. First, I begin with the first snapshot, obviously, and it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Now, it's a long portion of Scripture, and that is why uh, I call this a snapshot, because to do a deep dive in this portion of Scripture, honestly would take a few weeks because there's just so much being said here by Jesus. But in this portion of Scripture, if I can state it this way, Jesus is describing the God life, the God-centered life. This is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap 
or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you add one moment to his or her lifespan by worrying? Luke says, can any of you add an inch to your height by worrying? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, no. Okay. And why do you worry about clothes? Consider how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin or tread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much or won't he do much more for you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But here's the proverbial punchline. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided, literally will be added bit by bit to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And it's not a mouthful. In this chapter, which comes from the Sermon on the Mount, essentially Jesus' description of what life under his leadership would look like, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He gets down to the practicalities of life. He's talked about spirituality, but now he's talking about money and daily living. And his very first words are, with regards to daily living, don't worry about your life. He says, look at how your father cares for creation. You are worth more to him than these created things, animals and plants and so on. He's saying worry won't do a thing for you. It won't add anything to you. It won't add anything to your height or to length of your life. More importantly, he says, your heavenly Father knows just exactly what you need. But instead of being concerned with the things that normally we underscore as the concerns of life, Jesus says, make this your overriding concern. Make this the preoccupation of your heart the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed at night. God's kingdom. And his righteousness. Make that your concern. Concern yourself with the things that matter most to God. And you will allow him to concern himself with the things that matter most to you. To rephrase it. It's as if he's saying continually pursue where I am in your midst. And what I'm doing. And do the right thing. And all that concerns you, I will care for myself. Now, let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's a big one. It's not me. Some would say that the words of Jesus right here have completely lost touch with reality. Absolutely. 
There is no way on earth, in light of the world that we live in, in light of Western life, Western civilization, economies, debts, borrowing, expenses, materialism, governments, cities, taxes, laws, social needs. There is no way on earth that the words of Jesus even remotely for a second or an atom size, have any relevance, significance to life as we live it right now. Now, maybe you have thought that at times. I know I have. I look at the life I live. I look at the family that I have. I look at my understanding of what are legitimate daily needs financially, emotionally, physically, vocationally, on and on and on. And I'm saying, you're asking me to not be concerned about the things that, that, that preoccupy the concerns of every living individual on the face of the earth, and you're asking me to substitute that with a concern for your kingdom and doing what's right? And somehow in that great exchange of my concerning myself with the things that concern you, you will concern yourself with the things that concern me. Jesus, are you serious? And of course he's serious. He's God. You see, I look at this and I say, Jesus, what you're saying might work in the world of fishermen and farmers. But not in the worlds of doctors and lawyers and, and social media giants and construction workers and, and nurses and builders and, and architects and um, accountants and, and on. It, it doesn't work. And he says, Mark, it does. It really does. I'm just going to leave that hang with you for a while, Okay. That's kind of like, uh, well, I'll just leave that hang with you for a while. I'll let that just kind of sit around the room, and we're going to pick it up after. Snapshot number two. Well, I kind of got ahead of myself, right? Snapshot number two uh, is, is where I'm going to do the satellite image. It's where I'm going to roam down into something. And, and you've seen those on TV, right? De- depending if you're watching some of those shows where the government's out to get the bad guys and, and the satellite's zeroing in, and then all of a sudden it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden you see a little red dot in a room, and you're going, they're, they're watching this person in this kitchen from a satellite. I'm doing a satellite dive into a very, very small portion of Scripture that has complete relevance to what we're talking about today, but is so significant to our understanding of the good life and the God life that it's, it would be foolish to ignore it. It comes from this parable that Jesus taught on called the parable of the sower, which is found in Matthew 13. It's found in Mark chapter 4. Is found in Luke chapter 8. And essentially, it's Jesus' description of the way the Word of God works from the moment we hear it to the moment that it accomplishes 
what God had intended it to do. Some of you will remember from your Sunday school days that beautiful text in Isaiah 55 that says, so shall it be with my word that it will go where I send it and it will accomplish what I've purposed for it to do. And the analogy that God is using Isaiah 55, he said, you know, it's like my water is like seed and, and water and it just, it, keep, it, it, it makes its way and eventually accomplishes what I intended for it to do. And here's Jesus, I'm sure, picking up on the same analogy going, the word of God is, is like a seed. And when it's planted in the heart of a human being, it is incredible in terms of its creative potential, what it could do. It could transform a life. His word can raise the dead. His word of truth can turn the lights on for somebody who's been locked in darkness and deception all their life, only to come out of it and have a completely turnaround, 180-degree turn, and leave darkness into light. And so Jesus is saying in this parable, guys, there, there are four conditions of heart. Now, I mean, I've got to take the man at his word. He's saying there's four conditions of heart. And they all respond to the word of God differently. Now, it's a beautiful parable, and there's so much in there, but I don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. I want to look at the third condition of the heart that Jesus masterfully explains and explores for us. This is what Mark says, and I've, I've, even though I've been in Matthew, I'm going to use Mark's version of this third condition of the heart because he adds something that, that Luke also has, but for whatever reason, Matthew doesn't include. And this is what Jesus said. Others are like seeds sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word of God, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus is saying... Person number three, heart condition number three is like this. It's a condition of heart typical of people who will come in and hear the word of God and, 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 and they will hear and they'll go, oh, that's a good message. That, wow, Pastor Shannon, that was out of the ballpark today. And they go home and they go, man, I, I got to really take that to heart. I got to do something with what he said. And they go home, and, and they're thinking it through, and it's like, yeah, and, uh, oh, what's on TV? Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. I, I should go down to the dealership and check out, uh, check out the 2018 models of, uh, I mean, I've got a 2016 wife. You know, that's kind of getting a little old. And before you know it, it it's like, Whatever was shared in the sermon is kind of like, well, that's nice. It kind of goes on the shelf of tomorrow's to do. And then life with all its worries and concerns and life with all its potential wants take over. 
And it's like this, this word that's planted in the heart that's trying to speak to this person and get this person's attention and hold their attention and say, listen, I spoke to you this morning and I need you to make an adjustment in your attitude. I need you to make an adjustment in the way you live. I need you to make an adjustment in the way you're treating your wife or your children. I want you to do something. And you're going, yeah, yeah, just, just, just let, let me, I, I, I'll get to that. Jesus is just simply saying that the deceitfulness of riches, the worries of life, and the concern or the desire for things, stuff. Luke actually uses the word, the, um, um, the, the uh, what, what does he use? Anyhow, I'll get to it. Oh, the pleasures of life, pleasures of life. Have a way of, of strangling out the voice of God from the word. Now, the worries of this age, we all know what they are. Think of the things that keep you up at night. Healthcare, your children's education, getting an education, making your mortgage, paying off your bills, your credit cards, um, line of credits, having enough to make, make your groceries. I mean, the list is endless of the things that concern us, that worry us, that weigh our heart down. And, and sometimes we're just living from concern to concern to concern because, my goodness, we no sooner put out one fire and there's another one. The deceitfulness of wealth. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not attacking wealth. He's simply saying there's something about wealth, about finances, that has a way of altering our sense of reality. Now, there's probably a hundred very intelligent, good ways of explaining it, but what Jesus is saying here is that wealth has a way of deceiving you in, in, in the sense like you, you have this intrinsic sense of power to accomplish, to do what you otherwise would not be able to do if you did not have wealth. If you had wealth... The sky is the limit. You can do it. You can buy it. You can achieve it. You can obtain it. You can acquire it. You can accumulate it. You can get it for you. Right? Compared to not having wealth and not being able to do that. So the deception comes in the sense of, oh my goodness, look at what I can do with wealth. Look at what I can get for myself. Look what I can avoid. Look what I can accomplish. Look what I can buy. Look what I can secure. Look what I can have put in place when I retire. Deceitfulness literally means delusion. The delusion of wealth. Thirdly, the desire for other things. Literally, it's a word that is always used in the New Testament in the concepts of coveting of craving and of lusting. It's, it's the part of our twisted, tangled heart that is never satisfied, that is never content, that is never... It's the part of us that cannot be satisfied with enough. 
It's the part of our heart that says, more, more. If I just can have this, if I can just get this race, if I could just have this car, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, and it's all-consuming. Luke uses the word, the pleasures of this life, where we get the Greek word, hedonai, translated into English, hedonism. The fun things in life, the, the, the thrills and the chills and all the, oh, get out there and do it, yeah. This is real. Jesus is identifying three things that have the capacity to crush the human heart. Heartbreakingly, these are the three things that are quite often synonymous with the good life. I call them worries, wealth, and wants. You see, there's this strange thing about worries. They're all-consuming. It doesn't matter what it is. You may be the most simplest person doing a simple job, just trying to get by, but there are things that consume you, that worry you at night, that keep you up, and you, you just want to get someplace where you don't have to worry about that. But the moment you do, you get into this place of, of satisfaction and temporary contentment until there's the next mountain to climb, the next thing to get, the next thing to accumulate. Wealth and wants. And, and I, I've, I've put it out this way. And again, I'm making an application of this Bible text. Maybe some of you might think I'm stretching it, but I'm, I'm trying to address what Jesus was addressing in his day to the world that we live in today. And it's like he's saying, hey, listen. Or it could be viewed this way. You got concerns. You got worries. You got things that keep you up at night. You want to have control over those things? You want to make them a non-issue? Maybe if you have enough money, that'll take care of those worries and concerns. So you get your concerns taken care of and you're in a good place. You got your, your retirement already. It's all packaged. It's good to go. Bills are paid. Everything's in place. Hmm. What about today? What about having fun? What about enjoying my life and being happy and, and having good things? Why not? Is there anything wrong in having good things? No, there's nothing wrong with having good things. The problem is, is that our sinful nature is wired to never be content with good things. We want more. Try to take away something that you like. Or let somebody try to take away something that you like. Try to give away something that you really like. The point is, is wealth will either help us deal with our ongoing concerns, wealth will either help us deal with our ongoing consumption of things. We consume, consume, and consume, and have, and more, and get, and get, and more. The problem again and, and Jesus is the one who's saying it. I'm not the one who's saying it. Is that it does something to us on the inside. 
It shrinks our heart. It shrinks the capacity of the Word of God to change us and to lead us into change and to move us into action. Again, Jesus says that when these things set in, they choke the Word, not allowing it to bear fruit. Now, what does this mean? It simply means that the Word of God's capacity to penetrate our hearts and inform the way we think and impact the way we live, bringing about gradual change and eventual transformation as we trust God and obey Him and grow, begins to diminish and wither and suffocate, just like something or someone who's being strangled. He does not give us a way out of this condition right here and there. You see, the formula of the good life in a North American context is simple. You're born, and your years are spent in preparation for education. You get your education to discover your vocation, and then your relationships. And then hopefully at that point, you're ready to settle down, and you've got your habitation. And once you're settled down, and you start accumulating things, And stimulation, keep yourself happy, keep yourself busy, keep yourself going on and on and on. Hopefully one day you're you're looking towards relaxation, that you retire. And and I'm not poking fun at anybody or or, uh, being mean-spirited or doing a cheap shot. It's because I I struggle with this. I, I look at the formula of life here in North America and I'm saying... How is my life different than this predictable formula that was handed to me the moment I came out of the womb? That my parents encouraged. That I'm living with and every now and then when I bump into the Word of God and it's, it's calling me to something different. Something less predictable and structured that's more like an adventure where I'm following God and looking for what he's doing and where he's at work and what he's involved in, what he is concerning, considering a priority and calling me into. And I'm going, I got bills to pay. I got things to do. I got a family to raise. I got a car to take care of. A car. An 18-year-old Volvo. Let me tell me something. You want to talk about concerns? <laughs> Some people complain about gas. I go like, you know... Uh, you know, like some people go, you know, uh, yeah, fill it up with gas and check the oil. Me, it's like fill it up with oil and check the gas. <laughs> Anyhow, it's a safe vehicle. So much more I can say about this. I, I, I know you're getting my drift. I had to laugh. Can I just add a little bit of humor at this moment so that, you know, you're thinking, oh, man, can you just dial it down a bit? So I pastored in Georgia in um, a very, really wild, radical church, and um, it, it was just something else. Like, it was pure Bible Belt country. And there was this one guy, like, I, I didn't physically hear him, but, uh, but, but this is what he was preaching. He was getting up there, I want to let you know that the Lord spoke to me and gave me an additional revelation on what Timothy, or Paul said to Timothy. It is not the love of money that is the root of all evil. It is the lack of money that is the root of all evil. 
Only in America, eh? <laughs> Only in America. Snapshot number three. Let's land this plane. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's Paul, godly pastor and his apprentice pastor. And this is what he says to him. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine that does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain? But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Again, echoing Jesus' words. And again, my heart goes, Paul, seriously? Food and clothes? That it? Is there another tier? Like food, clothing? I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but you know that in, in these days, if you had a good toque, a, a, toque, a tunic, you know, like one of those big coats, that was your sleeping bag, your blanket at night, your blankie, right? So if you had your, your food and you had your clothing, which was also doubled up as your blankie, you're, you're in pretty good shape. Jesus and Paul are saying, that's a good place to start being content. Okay? But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and unharmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And, and, and let's go down a little bit. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age when Christ returns, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. You see, the dangers of affluence and money were just as real in the days of farmers and fishermen as they are today. And Paul's remedy sounds suspiciously like Jesus. Aim for contentment with what you have. And you know the old definition of contentment. Contentment is not having what you want, but simply wanting what you have. And saying that's enough. 
And it's a wrestling point. Like, honestly, let's wrestle with this. Because in our, in our, in our day and age, how is it possible? Well, well no. Let's, let's just kind of start by saying, well, okay, so food and clothing must really mean this, this umbrella. Because nobody can live in a tent in January and February in Canada. Anyhow, you can join the dots. I don't have to say anything about this. But this third snapshot requires that we need to make decisions about the God life. Jesus described the God life. We looked at a snapshot of what the good life looks like in North America anyhow. And now decisions we need to make about, it's almost like returning back to the God life. Obviously, we need to make decisions about contentment. We need to make decisions about what we consume, what we let go, what we can live without. I think we need to prepare ourselves that this is going to be a conflict. It's not easy. I hate letting go of things at times. And I'm embarrassed to say that there are times where I find emotionally, if it was not for the Holy Spirit, and the, well, the Holy Spirit and my wife, because she would beat me senseless if I got home. But, but you know, there, there's times where I think, oh, I, I would like to get that. I, I can get that. And then I, I hear God and I see Karen, and I go, oh. Right? One can, one can kill the soul, one can kill the body. So that's a pretty, pretty easy way to say no. But it's a conflict. And we need to make decisions about confidence, our trust in God. Okay. Conclusion. The good life is not the God life. I don't know how else to say it. I have wrestled with this to try to make the good life compatible with the God life. And I am having the fight of my life to do so. Because I don't hear the Holy Spirit constantly saying to me, Mark, get more. You can have more of this and more of that. I'm constantly hearing the Holy Spirit saying, Mark, can you give this away? Do you really need that? Instead of buying it, why don't you get it from the library? Oh, no, that's my wife. Um, Are you following me? Give it away, Mark. Let it go. You don't have to buy that. You don't need that. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Shut up. The God life is a God-centered life that guarantees that your needs will be provided for. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be provided for you. Pursuing the good life will leave you constantly battling with worry, wealth, and wants gradually stunting all spiritual growth in your heart. Nobody is exempt. I don't know how long you've been following the Lord, but you are not exempt. The God life will require that you daily cultivate trust in your Heavenly Father to give you what you legitimately need. But it will also call you to develop contentment in your daily life of wanting what you have and not having what you want. 
I love number five. And this is just a translation of um, a Greek scholar that, that Pastor Shannon and I like, Ro- Ro- uh, Mounts, Robert Mounts. Um, he rephrased this, seek ye first the kingdom of God, but he rephrased Luke's version of it. Have his kingdom as your overriding concern, and these things will be given to you in addition. I'll close with this. This is no, this is no, there's no quick fix for this, right? You, you can't fix this. All you can do is prepare yourself to wrestle with it until we leave this earth. Nobody ever whips this thing. It's an ongoing battle. Richard Foster wrote this book about, as a matter of fact, 40 years ago now, it's the 40th anniversary. It's sold to a million copies. It's going to be considered a classic pretty soon. It's called Celebration of Discipline, and it's all about exercises that Christians practice as a way of helping them to listen to God, to pay attention to God, and to, be, to, to allow, the, allow God to really have access to their lives. You know, we pray, God, I want more of you, and God's saying, well, I need more of you. You have all of me, but I don't have all of you. Spiritual disciplines help us to give all of us to God. But in this beautiful book, there's one chapter called The Discipline of Simplicity. And, and after 30 years of reading all kinds of stuff, I still come back to this chapter all the time. Somebody asks me, what does Jesus say about money? I go to this book. And somebody says, I, like, what's the problem with materialism? I go to this book. Somebody says, I, I don't know what to do because I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with affluence. I go back to this book. Scripture, obviously, but, but this book too. This one chapter is spoken so powerfully. It's like a surgeon's scalpel, but it's done with grace. And it's just filled with practicalities on how you and I, step by step, thought by thought, decision by decision, day by day, begin to live the God life, slowly detoxing ourselves away from the good life. So we can actually live with genuine contentment, peace, and happiness, and freedom in this world. I made a chap. I made a copy of the chapter. It's in the lobby, right by the small groups table. If you want a copy of the chapter, I will make it for you. Just sign your name on the the sample chapter. I've never done this before, but there's just no way that I can say what this person has said. I would probably say it with an edge, but he says it with such incredible grace. And it's powerful and convicting, but it works. I really believe there's an anointing on that chapter. But if we are going to take our lead pastor's challenge seriously and the challenge from the Word of God about dollars and cents, about living financially in such a way that actually declares to the world around us that Jesus Christ is the Lord and leader of our finances. Then we've got to start looking at the way we live, the things that we have, what occupies our worries and our wants, and we start making adjustments and changes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I know this is probably not the easiest message. I know it's not for me because it's hard But I'm just glad that you understand what makes us tick. You understand 
you just understand this crazy thing of why is it that when we have so much, we're still dissatisfied? When we accumulate things, when we have more money, it just never seems to hit the bell. But yet there are times when we give away things, when we learn to live without, there's a joy and a peace and a freedom that is almost inexplicable. Surely to goodness you understand how you made us to live on this earth and what we can live on. Can you please help us to stop putting bad fuel in our heart and live off of good fuel, the fuel of your kingdom? And I just pray that in in this mumbo-jumbo of what has been shared over the last half an hour or so, would you take that which is true from your perspective and like an archer, point it at the heart of whoever needs to take this to heart and let them walk away with you speaking to them about the changes that will ultimately bring them the freedom and peace and contentment that they long for in this life. I thank you for this in Jesus' name.